Hey everybody, this is Sean, and thank you so very much for returning for another episode of Shot by Shot. And we are back with our very good friend, Kali Hamner. He's alumnus from Gaijin Studios. And uh, him and Brian go down the rabbit hole, talking about what it's like to be an artist going up through the ranks at DC Comics, and also having a comic that is turned into a movie. So, uh, Kevin, what did you take away from this conversation? Back when Red came out as a comic, uh, the comics to film thing uh, was more about superheroes. So it's really neat to see Cully, who had this create her own book, and see it get realized as a, as a film. Uh, it was really you know, a big step forward for, for the whole genre, I think, the whole world of comics, especially the stuff that was non-superhero. So it's cool to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll let Brian and Cully jump into it. Please enjoy. Working with a good writer, and I say good writer, not even great writer. I mean, great writer is just like yeah. insane. That's crazy town. But when you're working with a with a really good writer, that's like having like a day with perfect humidity, the perfect yeah. sheet of paper, and the perfect pencil. <laughs> you know, yeah. now you can just concentrate on your art. Because I, I think there's a selfish thing that we do, which is, oh, this is not a good story. Well, I'm going to save myself and just do some of the most amazing art you can imagine. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, I think we all, I think we all do that from time to time, where you, you you're on a project and it's not really kind of what you thought it was going to be, or you know, the, the most you can do is is you know, while you're bailing that water out of the ship, is to look good doing it. You know, and yeah, yeah, but uh, but I think. Uh, with both the red and with the uh, with the question, suddenly you have great stories at, at the foundation. It's yeah. like if well, you just show up for work, it's going to be a great story. Well, that's the thing. Is it both, both of those guys nice art into it? Yeah, but both of those guys, Warren and Greg, it's like you know they came to the table with something that wasn't even fully formed yet, really. But it was you knew it was going to be good because they were into it. They were into me doing it with them, which at least by the time I when I was on red, I was not used to having that sort of I hate to put it this way, but that sort of respect and trust kind of like sort of put on my plate, you know, where somebody's like, oh, I know what you do. What you do is great. And I know exactly what to give you for you to just do your thing. And Warren had studied my stuff and figured, okay, I know what I think he does best, and I'm going to give him that. And nice. that's what he did. And, you know, by the time I got to Greg, and, you know, look, I've worked with a lot of really good writers, but those two, I would not necessarily say, oh, well, they're just so much, you know, so head and shoulders above everybody else. I think that would be disrespectful. But I think that both of those guys had a real personal trust between the two of us that really made for some good stuff. And when I got to and, Greg, and I think, I think resonance yeah. has something, has something to do with it. There's, there's, there's yeah. certain, certain artists that fit with certain writers and that combination yeah. creates the best stuff. And, and it goes back to jazz. It's like, there's certain musicians that, you partner them with other musicians and they have that feel. Um, 
I mean, it's almost it's it's almost a regret that I have that you and I have never done a book where one of us is the writer and one of us is the artist because I feel like you and I have that sort of trust with each other that I've had yeah, with yeah. with Warren and with Greg. I mean, both both of those guys, you know, come to the table with like amazing bodies of work and amazing ability to do. I mean, to write something good for anybody, but they were able to just sort of find the key to what I do and just sort of go, here you go, go for it, my friend. I'll be over here. Oh yeah. 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 And, and, and I think there's some, there's something nice to be said about like um, when you, when you get a premise or when you read a story and you're just like, Oh God, this has got to be several months of me just having to get through this. (laughs) And the, the flip side, which is, you get a story and you're just like, oh, my God, I would be pissed off if somebody else got this. <laughs> you know, you know and, what? I'll, I'll say this, though. I, I almost never I don't think I actually I wouldn't say almost I never sign on to a project thinking, all right, let me just get through this. Uh, this is not going to be good, but I need the job. You know, it's like I I don't think I've I've done that and probably 20 years i mean yeah I was, I was about to say i never do that now yeah it's <laughs> it, it, it's a situation where sometimes i will sign on to a project and think man this is going to be great and then at some point i realize it's just not working the way it should and sometimes the personalities don't work sometimes uh editorial gets in the way sometimes you know the business gets in the it's way fly, it's a flying monkeys man yeah, and sometimes look, sometimes it's just life gets in the way. Just something's not not clicking. You know, maybe you're just not vibing personally with whoever you're working with and it's not even personal. It's just it's just you're not connecting. Uh, yeah. that's happened lots of times. Hopefully you don't really see it because hopefully we're we're professional enough to make sure that you know whatever it is is readable. But oh, uh, yeah, yeah. no, you know, no and, one and sets think, out to do a bad comic. I've never met anyone yeah. that's ever set out to do a bad comic. Yeah, and I think that's that's one of the reasons why all of these, um, you know, directors will have their cadre of actors that yeah. they have in all their films. They'll drag like a cinematographer or an editor from film to film to film because yeah. it's just like, okay, we can harmonize well together. So yeah. let's move this to different uh, different projects. You know, and it, what's funny is I don't even think it necessarily has to do with personally getting getting along with someone a lot of the time. Because, I mean, a lot of these directors, like you talk about, like Coppola, his cinematographer on The Godfather, uh, Gordon. Um, oh, my God, why am I blanking on his name? Uh, they didn't get along at all. But wow. they did their best. They did their best work together. Look, I mean, I've, I worked on projects where. You know, the people I'm working with, maybe we don't get along that great, but they, they we turned out a, a good project. You know, it just happens. But uh, sometimes, you know, you go, well, I, I don't necessarily don't personally get along with this person that well. But, God, we really we really sing together. So we're going to keep working together. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's, that's that's pretty awesome. It's and. And, you know, I think it's like when it gets to the page, you know, like uh, yeah. the, the, coolest, the coolest thing we've, we've uh, discussed this is uh, when when someone comes behind you and elevates the work. Yeah. You know, when, yeah. when, when you because you're there and, and it's like this thing becomes your child. And then you have to, like, let it go and, uh, and, and 
when a colorist, you know, or an inker comes behind you and it just takes it to the next level. That is yeah. just so awesome. Yeah, and you know, you and I have been blessed with some really good colorists in, oh. in our in our you know years. Uh, you know, I think we both have done some pretty good work with uh, Laura Martin, who was our oh. studio mate for a number of years. Man, uh, she's she's way too good. Yeah, I mean, I, I've got my list of colorists that I, I tend to present to editors where I'm like, okay, can I have one of these people? You know, Laura's always on there. Dave McCaig is always on there. A few other people that, you know, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to read the whole list. But I've got my list of probably seven or eight people that I'm like, any of these people, I'm cool with any of these people. Yeah, and it, it makes you see your, your own work in a completely different light. You know, it kind of makes you kind of go, oh, that's that's my stuff. That's pretty cool. Well, yeah, I mean, Laura and Dave especially, and I'm just talking about my stuff here, but I mean, they both work with you too. It, there's just something, again, that is not conscious that they just get, you know, and they're both very versatile. They can both color anybody, but both of them, when they when they work on my stuff, I don't have to tell them much. I don't have to really verbally communicate anything. Uh, they just read the script. They look at the art and go, oh, he's going for this. And oh, yeah. I, I might make a few little notes after the fact. I almost almost never actually make palette notes because I feel like that's their main medium of, ex of expression is choosing their own palette and what to do with it. I might occasionally go, hey, can you – you know, can you knock this line work back here or can you put a little bit of put a little bit of a shine on this or something like that or a texture here? But for the most part, I, I you know, I leave them alone. I, I give notes after the fact because they know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The most fun in comics is layouts. I was going to say it. Yeah, layouts just, and, just... yeah layouts and concept mm -hmm. stuff. The, mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that stuff is, is so much fun because. Like one of the things that, that I like doing layouts and then showing the layouts to people and uh, and you're oftentimes my red team uh, as far as like showing layouts is <laughs> is there's storytelling with no art attached to it. Yeah, that's all it is. That's all. Yeah, it is. So it's it's just this pure form of, uh, of storytelling. And yeah. it's like it doesn't matter. It, it could be the worst sort of laid out scene of all times but if i put some awesome art on it it's gonna look good sure but and, I, I love it when you can show someone your layouts and they're getting jazzed about it and there's no dialogue and there's no anything it's just layouts well that's <laughs> yeah. that's comics i mean that that's the thing is is you know we've gotten in this place i think a lot of times where we and fans i think especially you know, just by their very nature, they're going to gravitate towards what looks cool, you know, because they can they can look at that and they can say they can see it in a second. This looks really cool. OK, but a lot of times, you know, what what you're doing in the layouts is working subconsciously and, and they don't know why it works. They just it appeals to them on a, on a much more uh, basic level. And, and to me, that's the real skill set when it comes to comics. That's one of the reasons why I sometimes lament the fact that, you know, that you don't really get um, an opportunity to work what they call Marvel style very much. anymore. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and for, for people listening, I mean, I know 
people at this at on this broadcast you know know what that is but for people listening that's when the writer gives you a very basic description of the plot that's happening not the story but the plot you know this leads to this this happens this happens this happens maybe a little subtext maybe some some placeholder dialogue so you sort of know what the characters are trying to say but sometimes you get like a you know something that's a couple pages long sometimes you get something that is a basic description of every page but it's not finished and there are certain visual decisions that are left to the artist uh, oh yeah, it's not. Yeah, that's, it's not. That's that's, um, that's why Stan and Jack worked so well together. Yeah, and well, Stan and Jack—that was a whole different thing. I mean, that that was that was literally a situation where Stan, from what I understand, from talking to people who were a little bit more, a little bit closer to that generation, Stan would actually have a conversation with Jack Kirby a lot of the time, and then say, "This is what we're trying to do," and you know, Jack would go home and essentially write it and bring it back yeah, to. That's the comics I want to do. I want to do. I want to do the the not not Marvel style, but Stan and Jack style. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I, I I I sort of feel like at that point it's like you better be paying me to write the thing and crediting me for it too. Because <laughs> I you know I don't mind. I I love getting that sort of like sort of a uh, um, uh, a plot style thing where basically the story's there. And it, the basic building blocks of everything is there, but I get to sort of make editorial decisions on how to get that across. You know, yeah. what I like to, to tell people is is that the artist is the last line, or you know, the the writer's talking to the artist. The writer's not talking to the audience. The artist is yeah. talking to the audience. You're reading the art. You're not reading the script. Not reading the plot when you read a comic book. So it's like. Uh, it's better for me if an art if a writer is talking to me is telling me what I need to convey to the audience. You know, the the most direct communication that the that the writer is going to have with the audience is in the dialogue. But I even have to sell that with the art. Yeah. Um, the art, the, 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 thing is, the dialogue should never be saying what the art is already saying. There's a real thin sort of <clears throat> membrane between What's story and what's writing, and, yeah. and I think I think now in in the comics industry, we have more writing than we have story. I mean, I, I can know. see that. I, I think that a lot of times what you have is, um, and I don't want to get off into the whole oh, artists deserve more credit or writers blah blah blah. You know, I, the the com- conversation is so played out, it's just, and it's boring at this point. But I do think that there's. A, there's a concept of imagery that is happens in literature, happens in all kinds of storytelling. And in prose, the imagery is supplied by the language. Film, the imagery is supplied by not just the director's decisions, but by the actor's decisions. In comics, the imagery is supplied literally by a visualist, by, by the artist. Uh, Imagery being the the descriptor of what's happening to the audience. And if the imagery is doing its job, the dialogue is then freed up to do other things, uh, to be supportive, to get to give subtext, uh, to play against the image, which is something I always like to do. I always point out there's this awesome bit of, of, of business that you had happening in uh, um, 
uh, what's uh, the Domino miniseries that you did with Joe Pruitt, where there's a oh, yes. I always talk about this. I love this this bit, but there's a scene where Domino is meeting with some sort of a handler or something in the park, and they're having a conversation about some sort of dire thing that's happening. And in the background, you know, and there, in the background, there's there's uh, a couple of kids on skateboards. And they're kind of doing all their moves and everything, and they're kind of showing off. And there's a point in the conversation where you're supposed to have an impact, and you see in the background one of the kids wipe out right at that moment. And it always struck me as like, that's such a really interesting visual way to get across the feeling. Because, you know, you're just talking about working with static images here. You don't have actors. You don't have music. You don't have any of the things that film has so how do you get that that punch in the chest across or at least that little pinch you know that you feel when something does not go your way or, or you're finding out something you don't want to know and i just thought that was a really you, you cool only, device yeah but you can only make you know two people with their mouths open because they're actually yeah. not talking you yeah know, they're just drawings of people with their mouths open you can only make that so impactful you yeah. know, without without getting kind of cartoonish, you know, and uh, and and that's that's the the thing that I that I think you know sort of you excel at is uh, is really being able to to like I said set up those set up those moments set up those those situations where you kind of go okay uh, and and you know the like you said the acting you know yeah. it's like they aren't just drawings. You know, well, but, I like what uh, you said earlier about about windows because really what you are doing is you are picking moments. That that's really yeah. what your your medium is more than anything is is moments. Yeah, and that that's that's one of the things that always comes back to me as 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 a comic book artist. It's like we're working in panels, yeah. and and the last thing you want that panel to be is a picture frame. Yeah. You know, because yeah. if that if that panel is a picture frame, uh, then then it's dead. Uh, but if you can make that panel a window, yeah, and and make the reader feel that if they if they got a little closer, they can actually see a little bit of stuff happening. You know, on the uh, on the sides, they can actually look down and see the characters' feet and everything. Then it actually like starts to have some some life to it. Yeah, I mean, I think if you really get down to it a, 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 a panel is a word a panel is at most a phrase yeah uh, and yeah. then yeah. You, you have a tier of panels that's definitely a phrase or maybe a sentence and then you get to you know the entire page you've got a few sentences strung together and by the time you're in you you know you're, you're at the end of the comic it's it's an essay you know it's it's yeah. like you it really is a language yeah well i, I remember us both um going to see uh the fifth element yeah uh the uh, the luc basson film and right. and one of the things that we talked about after seeing the movie is is like there were so many moments in the movie where we'd kind of go man I, those jamaican guys you know sort of hosing down the ships what's their story <laughs> you know what's yeah what's going right. on what's going on there you know let me right. <laughs> l- let me find out about that you know it's just like it's a throwaway moment um but it really made you feel because this is this this is a movie about this world that was just completely different from from our own 
And because you had moments like that where you're like, wow, those guys have a job and they kept on going and the camera just passed right by them. Um, yeah. So, so it really, it, it, it's moments like that that made that movie feel like it was what it was or it was uh, what it was saying it was. I'll tell you who does that even more. And, and, and I think this is, sort, again, sort of reflective to the idea of making people in the background look like there's a story to tell. Uh, the Coen brothers. Oh, are my like, God. They, yeah. they're, they're masters at basically telling you a story, but then go, and then, but while they're telling you this story going, now, hold on a minute. I'll, I'm going to take a break from that for a second. I'm going to talk about these two guys sitting at the lunch counter. And one of them's got abdominal distress and they're talking about Bromo. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. and they, and they have this little moment here while one of the main characters is slowly moving her story forward, you know, oh, or, yeah. well, and, and I, I think the, um, the detectives in Barton Fink, <laughs> yeah. know, who are literally finishing each other's sentences, you know, and it's, it's yeah. just like, it's just this lyrical moment that and it's like, you know, just makes you feel like, okay, yeah, this is a world. I'm, I'm looking it, through a window. And isn't it all about, again, that concept of resonance? I mean, because if you if you try to explain why this is in the story on paper, it kind of doesn't make any sense. But yeah. these guys, yeah. these guys have trained themselves to the point where they're not thinking consciously about necessarily all of those decisions. They're just thinking this feels right, right here. Uh, and it resonates and we're going to keep it in the movie. And I, I, um, I don't know if you guys follow, uh, uh Christopher McQuarrie on Twitter. Oh, yeah. I, I, yeah. I love his Twitter feed because he has a lot of this kind of stuff that we're talking about on his Twitter feed. And he's the one that actually hipped me to the whole kind of idea of resonance rather than whether something is right or wrong, because there are lots of films where something works and then other films try to do it and it doesn't work. And it's because it doesn't resonate with the story that they're telling or the audience that they're trying to reach. And it resonates, you know, there are lots, you know, you look at Raiders of the Lost Ark and it doesn't, there's a lot of things that don't make sense in that story, but they resonate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's like, uh, I'm currently working on a thesis of the Mike Mignola frog. (laughs) (laughs) There's continuity there. (laughs) Or it's, it's, it's just this like little visual thing that gets thrown in there that literally has nothing to do with the story, but it, it, it creates this feeling well, the, the monkey, the monkey with the gun, is another one that uh, that has yeah, that sort yeah, of exactly. <laughs> that sort of feeling with me. It's like let, let let's seemingly stop for a second and 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 deal with this monkey with a gun. It's so such a bizarre thing, and it does figure into the story, but it's still so weird. But it's so, I mean, I can't forget it. Oh yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. and um, and it it really it really does like um you know. And, and it's it's kind of a, a, a such a a weird obtuse way of of telling the story because in a sense there's a narrative but instead yeah. of that narrative being visual you know instead of that narrative slips to being psychological but it's still a, a thread it's still just a clean thread and oh my god speaking of frogs and you want to talk about <laughs> resonance. It has nothing to do with like, oh, let me do this cool story that makes sense on all levels. It's like, 
Walt Simonson at oh, some point oh, yeah. said, you know what? I'm going to make Thor a frog for a couple of issues. And it's, yeah. I have always loved that, that bit. And only he could have pulled that off. And it's so classic and amazing. And, uh, my God, like, where did he even come up with that? And those, those are the best things when, when you see something and you immediately think, I would have advised against it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how often nowadays have you been talking like where you're like, oh, I'm going to do something like this. And, and whatever editorial situation you're in, you know, somebody will go like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. that, that sounds like a really dumb idea to me. Yeah. He clearly <laughs> had an editor that didn't want to write comics. But one of the yeah. creators create yeah. comics. <laughs> yeah, I I have a I mean I have a feeling that that time in comics was a lot more freewheeling than it is now. Uh, I think there was just a lot of people going, you know, I'm just we're just gonna we're just gonna do it. Yeah, and, yeah. and they'll they'll rein me back if I go too far. Things. Yeah, but uh, mm-hmm. I mean that's I mean obviously I mean I grew up in that time, but that's that's my favorite period of comics is that sort of you know kind of mid to early or probably 80 82 83 all the way up to like you know the very late 80s there was that period of like uh you know you had all this great stuff coming out from both marvel and dc and it was all just so interesting and weird and i can reread it till i die i mean it's just so such great stuff yeah now uh, something else i wanted to, to ask you about is um is there's there's kind of a um, I, I would I would say almost almost like a story um, sort of type that you tend to gravitate towards um, in in most of the stuff that you've done in your career. Um, you know, there's you can really kind of you know it's 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 like well, Scorsese does gangster films, you know, um, <laughs> and uh, right. to me, I think um, I think it's you know. Scorsese doing Hugo is like you doing Blue Beetle. <laughs> you saying you don't like Blue Beetle? Is that what you're telling me? Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> it, it, it's it's the opposite. It's the opposite of that. Uh, I think um, I think I think Blue Beetle. You know, you became <clears throat> the person that you needed to be to do Blue Beetle because I think that is to a certain extent so far outside of of your normal stream, but now you're doing what is ostensibly a very superhero comic book. Yeah. You know, and you're doing it well, <laughs> you know? So, um, I mean, that's, that, I mean, I it think was Blue certainly Beetle different. Is, yeah. But, but know, it's, for me. It's, it's incredibly mainstream, um, for, um, for, you know, sort of what, what you normally do. And, uh, and I was, um, I was kind of wondering, I mean, did you feel that you had to put your head in a different place or was it just something that you could easily slide into? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I try to put my head in a different place with everything. You know, I, I always try to find, there's always got to be a hook in there for me to kind of connect to it, you know, like, like something I can sort of jack into. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, once again, I mean, you've got a character of color, you've got, um, you know, uh, a kind of a Spider-Man-ish kind of a uh, of a setup. Um, but I was interested in 
trying to come up with something like, like a different look for a superhero. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was interested in, you know, when they came to me with that book, it was, they had a couple of designs that kind of weren't really what they were looking for. And it, it almost felt like it was a nut that they couldn't crack. And yeah. Yeah. Well, I, um, at the, at that time when you were doing that, I mean, I was literally in the studio next to you. Yeah, that that and, particular uh, studio I, that we were in was we were we didn't have doors. You and I were right mm-hmm. next to each other. Yeah, and I, I remember you <clears throat> kind of um, coming into you know um, my um, my studio and laying that that design you know sort of on the table, and you saying, "What do you think of this?" And my first thought was, "Whose design is this?" <laughs> <You know? laughs> It's so good. Certainly not this idiot that sits, sits next to me every day. You're a graphic guy that does organic stuff. You know, you're you're not the tech guy. I am definitely you know? not. And, and and like when you drop that costume on me, I was just like, whoa! You know, this is not this is not the Cully I know. And uh, but it was like really cool. But I really felt like. Oh man, you 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 had to stretch to be a different guy to pull that off and make it look natural. You know what? I, I I would actually say that I didn't have to stretch. What I had to do was stretch what they wanted towards me, if that okay. makes any sense. Because what they gave me to start with, what they had already had, the the concept behind the way the character would look as written was more like a mech, like more like a, like a, um, like a transformer or something, you know? And I was like, kind of looking at what they had. I'm like, well, first off, there's nothing distinctive about any of these. Uh, they were cool looking, but they're not something that you could hang sort of a brand on. Yeah. Uh, and that was kind of in my head was, you know, superhero costumes are brands in a lot of ways or at least the really successful ones are. And I also felt like no one's going to want to draw this every month. If it doesn't feel like a being, if it doesn't feel like, like a human. So it was really a matter of kind of breaking, breaking it down to like the anatomical elements and segmenting them so that they felt more like, you know, more machine like or more armor like. Um, but well, it was still it that was, was, still that was the neat thing about it is he could he could still express his humanity within the costume. Well, I mean, if you think about it, it's very similar to like the way they used to do Iron Man, which you know Iron Man's a lot more you know especially since the movies and everything is a lot more technological looking. But you know when we when you and I were were growing up, it was a human figure, a, a shiny human figure, and the the faceplate on the helmet would sometimes get manipulated so that it looks like a little bit of a smile or it looks like a frown. Yeah. Sometimes you, you know, if you move the head a certain way, like the, the kind oh, yeah, of that, like, that was, that, was the thing that, I always, yeah, that was the thing that I always liked about Gene Colan is Gene Colan would do Iron Man and the expression was based entirely on the angle. <laughs> yeah. And, and, but that's a really ingenious way to handle it. Right. Or if you look at like what Ditko was doing on Spider-Man, which was something that also kind of figured into this, where two eyes and a bunch of lines was pretty expressive, you know? And you know, again, 
based on the angle of the head. Like if you wanted to kind of like sort of, you know, make, make the, the eyes, the teardrop eyes kind of turn up a little bit and look, look more surprised or sad, you would tilt the head back, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. So I, I was kind of in that space uh, in, in trying to figure this out. And, you know, I can't remember if I came up with this or you came up with this in describing what I did, but there was a definite Mexican wrestler kind of a thing about the mask. Yeah, yeah, there was a luchador kind of. Kind yeah, of the deal. luchador sort of a thing. And, and I tried to play with that, but also, you know, I just wanted that the idea that this is, I mean, this is not hard armor in the sense that it's metal, but it's sort of like an organic kind of a like an exoskeleton sort of a yeah. feel. So he would still have expressions, but you know, he had a black face, you had these these kind of yellow eyes and you had a mouth. And but I still wanted there to be the idea that there's a kid in there, you know. Yeah. So that's and that's that, that's, that's really, another thing yeah. that I think needs to be mentioned is is along along with horses, okay, <laughs> adolescence is like the toughest thing to draw. <laughs> yeah. Know? It's like because <laughs> It's it's easy to make it like a short man, you know, or yeah, giant, kids are hard. Kids know, are hard. Or a giant child. You know? I you know it's one of those things where I was already coming to the, I had been heading in a cartoony direction for a while at that point, not mm-hmm. in the sense that, uh, the tone was necessarily you know, unserious, but yeah, that yeah, I was yeah. toony without being funny. But like exaggerated and kind of like pliable and, you know, that sort of thing that my style had been evolving in that direction anyway. So by the time I got to Blue Beetle, I was drawing what was written in my style and my style kind of was already in the direction of of doing something that worked well with kind of a young paradigm, you know. So it's yeah, like, yeah. you know, that that really wasn't that difficult without doing out and out comedy it allowed me to kind of do like some more lighthearted stuff and i mean you know you and i like our personalities are pretty comedic when we're just hanging out i mean like we're we we are you know i mean like you're like a seriously funny person and you know you and i play off each other really well so it yeah, allowed i think i think of, we're, we're sort of the anti-comedians whereas comedians are like neurotic in real life and <laughs> funny on stage yeah <laughs> Yeah, I think yeah. we're kind of neurotic on stage, but funny right. in real life. It, it, it's like it's like you watch Mad Men and you and you see like uh, the Don Draper character and he's so dour and he's so you know so just heavy and all that. And then you see John Hamm on a talk show and you're like, this guy's hilarious. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> he's really funny. But uh, and you know of course he hangs out with comedians all the time. Uh, I just sort of felt like it, it was not that big a leap to be able to do that stuff. And, it, you know, it was written. I mean, it's on the it's it's on the page. And, and, so I, and I, I do think, um, in, yeah. in a sense, that that sort of set you up for the work that you did on the signal, you know, also. In some ways, I mean, in some ways, it was kind of a return to, to doing like, yeah, teenage characters sort of thing. One thing I thought was kind of interesting about that. Now, we, we actually did work something close to Marvel style on that book. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Um, and that was something that DC was kind of experimenting with line wide because actually, you know, what's funny is is that style had sort of gone by the wayside. So DC was trying to bring it back. And you don't realize until something's been gone for a while and people and you've got a whole new generation that's come up not having learned how to do it that way. 
that it is actually a skill. So yeah. we had a situation where you had me drawing the book. You had Scott Snyder, who's very experienced and knows how to write a plot on the book. And then you had Tony Patrick, who was brand new and was sort of learning on the fly how to do this. And it was just very kind of like feeling our way while we're doing this thing. So a lot of the, a lot of that stuff was like, I drew the first issue, not really knowing kind of what the final dialogue was going to be, you know, just kind of did what I was doing. And then I, I, you know, I get the lettered proofs back and I'm reading it I'm, and it was way funnier than it was in the script or was in the plot. And like Scott and Tony just got in there and did something like they just, it was, I, I'm not sure exactly what they did, but the dialogue was just much more comedic than what I was reading when I was drawing the book. And it, it worked. I, I was like kind of impressed with it. I was like, this is really, yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty the jazz, cute. man. That's, yeah. that's to me, that's the best thing is, is when, when the jazz, when they allow room for the jazz, you know, yeah. you can kind of yeah. like, uh, kind of make, make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that was definitely a, a sort of a, kind of a, a, a cousin to what we were doing on Blue Beetle in some ways. Yeah. And, um, and since, since we're doing, you know, shot by shot, something I have to ask is, okay. uh, with red, you know, the fact that so much of you actually made it into the movie, you know, you so much so? of the stuff. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of the stuff that, that you set up, even though the story of the movie is, is completely like, you know, left field, uh, from, um, what uh, what you and Warren did, uh, I, I think a lot of you. I mean, I mean Bruce Bruce Willis went out of his way to play the character that you did in all of the advertising and all of the uh, the credit sequences, especially in the second one. That's yeah. straight up you, dude. <laughs> you know? Well, you know, the second one I actually worked on the second. One. Yeah, uh, I, I actually uh, uh, they brought me in and I, I worked on the animation for the the credit sequence in the sequence in the second movie. And they specifically wanted to recreate and animate images from the book, which I mm -hmm. I, I admit at the time that I thought was kind of an odd choice because the movies are so different. Yeah. Than the book. Uh, and this was actually a sequel to the original book, so it was kind of like, I don't know. I remember thinking at the time, I'm like, what I pitched to them was, I said, how about instead we do a series of images of the characters in their younger days in their prime, like in the 80s or something, and we sort of set up each character. And they thought that was really cool, but the director just ultimately wanted just images from the book, which is what we did. As far as like the, the first movie is concerned, the first 15 minutes of that movie is a fairly straight adaptation of the oh, setup yeah, of the book. Yeah. And that's our latest episode of Shot by Shot. Come back next week and we'll have our final episode with artist Collie Hamner.